I'm Graham Parker, and you're watching Life Minute TV. Right, so how are you doing, Graham? I'm good. Yes, that's me. I'm all right. Hanging in. Hanging in. So Hanging thank you so much for doing this. It's Appreciate so great it. to be with you. So exciting. Uh, so how is the tour been going? Um, it's been going good. It's, it's a weird time to do it in. I'm sure everyone would say the same thing, but um, the venues are on top of thing and top of things, and the fans are turning out despite everything. Um, they want to see some live music. It's been a while. I haven't uh, done anything since 2019, I guess, touring-wise. Um, but yeah, I've been through a variety of places, did some uh, no-cal in the West Coast and uh, Chicago and Minneapolis. It's a typical array of venues where, you know, they want me there and, and they, the offers are right. And uh, uh, so it's been, it's been going pretty smooth, really. Apart from trying to find this place today, where my GPS is telling me it's on the left. <laughs> and it's not. It's right at this pier. Hello, there's the water. <laughs> I know, yeah, I had to swim over the road, exactly. So what can fans expect when they come see you play? Or people that don't know, have never seen you play live? Uh, well, I don't know, really. I suppose, well, because I do solo a lot, you know, maybe they expect, they look me up and they see the past and think I'm going to come with a big bat, you know which I was doing not too long ago when I uh, reunited the, my original band, The Rumor, and uh, we played uh, all over the place, both America and UK and some Europe. And I've been doing duo tours off, on and off, but mo mainly the, the basic thing is solo, because I, I consider it my most entertaining act, because it's more jokes and songs, and the jokes are better than the songs half the time. So, so you know, it's, uh, it works for me. And uh, I don't know, there's, I'd like, I don't want to know their impressions, maybe, if, they, if they've got some kind of misguided idea that it's 1976 or something. <laughs> um, but, yeah, most of, yeah, well, I like to say there's Graham Parker fans and then there's everybody else. And the everybody else doesn't know, don't even know the name, or they think I'm Graham Parsons, who happens to have died when he was 25. <laughs> or, um, you know, it's a certain amount of confusion. And those, those fans who are fans, they, you know, they, they, they've been very good. You know, they, they keep coming back in, in enough force. And I guess there are a certain amount of people. There are fans that I meet that were, you know, the inevitable happened when they were young. They grew up and they lost touch with music and there was no internet and they, they weren't following it. They were bringing kids up. And some of them come after 30, even 40 years now and say, you sound as good as ever. And I say, well, no, and I say, well, thank you, I appreciate it, but my voice is a totally different thing. Everything is different, really, from a musician's you know, point of view. But if they say that, then I take it as a flattery, you know, fair enough. So I do meet a lot of those people who just didn't know what I'd been doing for much of that time. They, they stepped out of it. They did what most of us did, bring kids up. You have kind of like a cult following of very cool people. Well, they, yeah, the cult following thing. I, I imagine people burning black candles and go, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, Parker, yeah. So I, I, I'm not sure of that word cult, but maybe. <laughs> in a good way. Yeah, in a good way, I hope so. Yeah, some of them are a bit weird, let's put it that way. But I think most are fairly sensible people, sort of. It's a, what I call a limited audience because I never sold a billion records or a million even. But I sold enough to make a living and I haven't had to think about a regular job for 45 years, so I call it a win-win. 
um, but you know, it's it is a, a solid selection of people who uh, who have stayed with. I and mean, America has been good for me with that. It always, even when I left the rumor and was making records with different people, I still got a fair shake a lot of the time with critics and with fans. So you know, America is definitely part of my home, as it were. How would you describe your sound? My sound. Uh, well, I'm a primitive in a way. I write songs with an acoustic guitar, sometimes electric, and I'm leaning over uncomfortably writing lyrics, or more often in the iPad. So um, that's a pretty similar thing, really. And I, you know, there's, a, there's subtleties and nuance in the way I play, and the band members pick up on that when I present people with new material, when I'm going to make a new album or something. But, um, it, you know, it is... It's obviously based on millions of influences, like most of us. I grew up, I was 12 when the Beatles and the Stones came along, and then we figured out they were getting it from America, which was blues and soul and, and uh, R&B. And so I'm, I'm sort of based in that sound quite a lot, with, a, with excursions into surrealism in lyrics and a variety of things. So I think I call myself a variety act, really, and an hour-and-a-half show kind of shows that it does go from from different styles but they all they're all part of me i just just multi-influences really going back a long way what do you want people to take away when they listen to your music well i i'd like them to to be moved and listen to and hear some lyrics that make them think something or hit them a bit here with emotional lyrics um these kind of varieties of, of emotion can be in one song from line to line from verse to verse i you know i know my way around the english language when it comes to writing songs and uh, uh i play i mean you know it's one of those things where you, you always ha you always have to say to yourself well it's just playing with words as well which it is but those words can have a great deal of effect you know after i've written something i think wow i was not thinking that at the time and fans get all kinds of different things. So it's, it's fair that they take what they want from it, really. Uh, what inspires you creatively to create? It's like a machine now. It's one of those things that's sort of locked into my, my brain. I, you know, I, I've, I've wanted a year, to be honest, I've wanted a year off for ages. And then, and then COVID came and it's like, be careful what you wish for. Uh, oops, it was my fault. Just to stop everything. And, uh, you know, don't even write, maybe. Just leave it out. I've got a lot of interests in life, all kinds of things. I live in both London and uh, in the Hudson Valley in New York. So I've got a lot of different uh, lives to live. So the music is just part of, part of that. But I can't help myself because things will come into the head. Like I think, I wonder what that's like, and I have to pick up a guitar. So that's kind of what drives me, that I can't help it in a way. Um, I'm just not in a hurry now. I'm not, it's not urgent for me to, you know, make a record every year. Like in the first year of my career, I made two, you know, two albums that released in 76. And I've been, you know, sometimes every year I've tried to keep that up. But now I'm like, you know, it is not urgent. And I'll work longer on the songs to, to, to hone them into a perfect place. Go into the studio and say they're 90% they're as, as, I'm, as I've written them, guys, that's how we're doing it. And then you adjust on the spot as you're cutting tracks and things, something pops into my head, I don't need that chorus or whatever. But, um, you know, it's, it's very much the same kind of primitive method of, 
you know, nothing's written down apart from I've got my lyrics and point out what the chords are to the guys who say, is that a minor? Yeah, that's a minor. Um, it's, it's very, very old fashioned, really. Would you say your sound has evolved at all over the years? Well, you know what, I think it, you can go back to the first ha album, Howling Wind, which came out in 76. And um, that had the, a lot of the basis of what I'm still doing now. I, I've sidetracked off of that into something more rock than rock and roll, which I consider to be slightly different things. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's the, the amalgamation of those, those influences is still there. The last album studio I'm out, I had a, out was called Cloud Symbols, and I kind of liken it to Howling Wind, and it's, it's what I'd call old-fashioned music. It has all those elements in it that are pre-Beatles, pre-Rolling Stones that they took and put their English thing on top of. I don't think I'm doing different than that. I mean, I, I can branch out and I start writing songs that are a bit more out of that line and usually you know, I'll put them on the side um, and I try to make albums that are like one song almost. Cloud Symbols is a perfect example. It's almost like a song cycle that amounts to one song, but they're all different which I find is the most satisfying. And it's not easy. The eclectic ones are easier, where you throw the kitchen sink, this song goes there, that song goes there. Um, and they're fun, they're fun as well. But it's, it's largely based on that, the roots, I call it soul, swing soul or soul swing. Uh, there's a lot of swing rhythms in it. And it's soul, I try to, you know, my idols I suppose would be Levi Stubbs and, you know, uh, and soul singers. Those R&B singers, you know, Wilson Pickett and all that, so that's still integrated in there. It hasn't changed a great deal. This is 40, obviously, that brought you a whole new, uh, yeah. you know. What was it like working with Apatow and all those people? <laughs> well, uh, unexpected for one thing, of course. Um, the interesting thing is, after 30 year gap, plus, plus 30 years, I reformed my original band, The Rumor, who are all alive and kicking and uh, still are, thankfully, and, and playing, playing great, you know. And I'd done that, as, and it was all sort of committed, you know, about a week later, my publishing company at the time said, John Appadow wants to talk to you. I said, give him my number, let's go. And he called up, and uh, I had no idea what, he was, what it was about, and he said about this movie he was making. And he thought, this, this part might be just right for you. You know, um, we can talk on the phone or I'll be in New York City next week. And I was upstate New York, as it happened, two hours away, really. So I said, give me a place, I'll meet you. So I, I met him and talked. And he, he told me, you know, about this part, basically playing myself and, and a guy who basically destroys an independent record label, which pretty much every act to that independent label is, is signing, is destroying them anyway, <laughs> because they're banking on record sales, which aren't really a thing anymore. Um, so I thought, oh, this is the perfect part. Let me destroy a record company. Let me really lower its standards by selling even less than the Haircut 100 record that they've got. <laughs> or Frank Black without the Pixies. You know, I, oh, I can add to that stew. So uh, I thought, man, give me this. And I, and I said to Judd, you know, I started, then of course I thought I'd better impress him with a, a, t a terrible Sammy Davis impression, you know. Have I played this room before? Because you kids are cool, and I mean that. Pachow, pachow, pachow. <laughs> oh, it was anyway. He, he thought I was dangerous all of a sudden. A guy who does that, you know, unpredictable. 
And I thought, oh, that didn't work. And he hired me anyway. You know, the rumour, before we'd stepped on stage, find themselves on first-class flights from England and the ones in Britain to Hollywood to be in a movie because I said, guess what I've done, Judd? I've reformed the rumour. We're going to do an album. And he also went like that because no one expected that, not even me. It was just kind of an accident. Wow, so that came, you came back together after that movie? Well, no, we, we were... To, we were do you know we'd made the, the the arrangement that we would be together before the movie was made long before it was made and so we made the movie and Judd said I want to film the um, rehearsal you know the, the recording of the album three chords good it turned out to be the title and I there was a guy doing a documentary of me the, the Gramalia brothers uh, called uh, ended up being called don't ask me questions the unsung life of Graham Parker, so I said, well, I've got this documentary maker. When I tell him I've reformed the rumor and I'm going to be in a Judd Apatow film, he's going to be all over it. He said, well, let him do the filming of you guys recording and we'll share it. So they put clips on the Blu-ray and all kinds of great stuff on the This Is 40 Blu-ray. Really a lot of stuff, including an entire live CD of us, you know, playing when we did the, the, the film. They put that together as a show because in a movie you're just going to get a clip and a clip and a clip. And so, yeah, the rumor was a, a locked deal. And then I said, I'm going to do an album. And we did the album and then basically had to wait a year to time it with, with the movie. So after that, everyone went home. We'd done the album. Then they were all flown to, to Hollywood. And we had the album in the bag. And he even got a, a Grammy-winning uh, designer to do the cover, Judd got that, and I said, all right, fine, fantastic, you know. Mm -hmm. So everything came together by complete accident, and uh, it was a perfect start, because we started on, you know, in Hollywood, on a stage of a, you know, in a huge club, doing this, um, the, doing the show to, to extras, really, in this fabulous building, and I'd already been out and done some acting parts in different parts of the movie. So I kind of had the, the swing of how they do things, you know. You were really good in it. It was funny. Well, yeah, I, I, I sort of was playing my dad, really. When, when, Judd, uh, when Pete, Pete, which is Paul Rudd, his character says to me, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm walking up to him and he says, what's wrong? You got something wrong with you? And I said, yeah, it's my foot. Touch your gout. So, so I did that like my dad would. He'd say, touch your gout, like that. And, and my mum would say, oh, don't be bloody stupid, Tom. And got bloody gout. He said, "Yeah, I've got a touch of gout." No, you haven't. So I was, I was trying to do my dad with, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, He's your inspiration. Yeah, he was my inspiration for being a bit of a gormless character. He was like, "Yeah, touch of gout." You know, complete misinformation. No, you got you got a sore foot. Um, so I just uh, I used a bit of that, and um, you know, I, I I really enjoyed it. But of course, after you see yourself, you want it all back. You want to do it again, better. You, you, got, you got the hang of it. No, man, you got, I've got the hang of it now. Give me a real acting job. I can nail this. Give me a guy who, like, tells someone to put their hands on the table and puts a knife through it. Come on, give me something. And it hasn't happened yet. I'm waiting. So it was, no, it was fabulous. It was um, just a great gift, really. And that was it. That's the way I treated it. And then, as I, as I always said, water will find its own level and I'll be driving around on my own to some horrible club somewhere. But actually, we can't call City Winery a horrible I was just going to say, no, no. and it's packed. Too. Yeah, they're still, yeah they're, still, uh, they're still giving me good venues these days. So what did happen to the rumor? And tell us about your gold tops. 
Uh, right, yeah, no, the rumor, well, I, I used Martin Belmont of the rumor uh, on that record, the Gold Tops, but I just thought it suited a different band. The rumor are still doing their various musical things or whatever they're doing. But um, we, we kind of said after three tours of this side of the pond and, and three on the other, that I think we've done it. It was one of those, yeah, that was good. That was great. Let's stop it before it all goes downhill or before... You know, we're playing smaller venues because, as I say, limited audience. They're not always going to keep coming back. There's a huge amount of choice out there, which is great for, for audiences. Um, and lots of bands from my era have reformed, some of them without many of their members, but they still have and they're out there doing stuff. Lots of my fans would like those people. So we just thought, that's it. That's great. So, you know, I never say never, but we're not, nobody's sort of, hovering, waiting for the phone to ring. Um, and, and I moved on to this record with the Gold Tops because literally my, my friend Martin Belmont, as I say, ex-rumor guitarist, I asked him, who do you know in London that would play this kind of material? I sat around and played some. And he said, I've got some, some guys that would be perfect, I think. And so I said, all right, I'll trust in that. And they were. They were just right for that album, which... Ironically, uh, what I didn't do with the rumor when we reformed, we did two reform albums. I didn't use the, the brass section that we were well known for in the early days because as soon as I got touring, I wanted the horn section. They were on my first album, they were on my second album. And um, the two of those guys were still out touring under uh, you know just whatever they, they were calling themselves. And, and I thought, let's get them. Uh, let's get them in. So they got a trombone player to make three. And I got them on the album and I got them to tour with the Gold Tops. It was me and the Gold Tops with the Rumor Brass. They said, can we call ourselves the Rumor Brass again? I said, yeah, bring it. So um, it was ironic that I didn't do that with the Rumor, apart from the, our final gig in London. Uh, we, 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 got, we brought them in to play that one show. Um, but there, there, it was, you know, there it was. They just seemed to be right for the Gold Tops record, you know, Cloud Symbols. Any other artists of today that you like that you think are particularly good that you listen to? I spend very little time listening to music. Um, I don't have um, streaming. If I listen to music, I would, even though I'm cutting my own throat by not, you know, by the low royalties and all that stuff. Uh, so I would do, because I'm not a Luddite or anything, but basically if I want music, I will download it but on iTunes and then, you know, put up a, my remote speaker on my, from my iPad. That's how I pretty much listen. I'm not an audiophile. And if I buy something, it's largely going to be, oh, I've got to hear that incredible string band record that I got into in 1968. Or, you know, King Crimson or the Hendrix album, Electric Ladyland. That's what I want to hear. But in saying that, when I hear people, there's a lot of good stuff. There's always good stuff. There's a lot of good acts. Um, and if I'm down in my local pub in London and I hear something on a Spotify mix, I'll say to Obama, what is that? And they'll tell me. And I'll say, okay, I'll make a note of that. And I might download one single. You know, and I'll download a single by some young band I've never heard of before. And I happen to have heard the tune a few times in the pub. And that, so, you know, I, ch I keep checking it out, but I don't follow. Yeah, yeah. I don't follow modern things. And I find I'm just too wrapped up when I'm writing in writing what I, what I write. Mm -hmm. 
and, and that just keeps me busy enough with, with the music world. What about people that aren't necessarily new? Like you did a collab with Springsteen, right, before? Tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, well, Springsteen's always going to do good stuff, you know. I mean, he's just good. And, you know, working with him, which is not, well, he did something with me in the studio, uh, up Escalator, did some backing vocals. And another time I was actually on stage with him at Asbury Park, you know, the Stone Pony, they had a festival mm -hmm. in the parking lot, and I was doing solo and... Um, and, and Bruce turned up to hang out and, and jam with you know some the Southside Johnny people. So that I was on that as well. And we did about forty-five minutes of stuff. And he's you know he's he's just a he's a working musician primarily, just like I am. And that I think that's that's what keeps him you know, down to earth. He's a, and he, he literally came on stage and said, "Have you got a guitar?" And I'm like, "You just play any guitar? I mean, this is a champ, you know. Come on." And he just said, he said, the guy said, what kind of guitar? But he said, I don't know, a guitar. They brought him an electric guitar. This will do some Japanese model or something. I'll be tearing my hair out going, this thing's unplayable. But Bruce, is, you know, he's a musician. And he's, he's a, I mean, he was going before me and was much more of a club musician where you go out and you, you know, you get on with it, whatever the situation. Whereas when I, my career started, I, I hadn't done anything. Really, nothing even vaguely professional, but he'd been in the trenches doing it, so he's got more of a background of, you know, get on with it than I have when I'm a bit fussy, you know. So yeah, he's, but I, I know I hear things, I listen, but I don't, I don't rush out and buy things to see what people are doing. What about Green Day? Do you did you were you familiar with them before the movie? Are they is Billy Joe really a fan? No, no, I don't think he knew who. I, no, I don't think he knew who the hell I was. He might have heard. He might have heard my name. Well, no, I mean, he he, he we he was nice to talk to, him. I like Green Day. I've liked a lot of their, I've liked a lot of their stuff over the years. You know, again, I'm not I'm not buying albums, but I I hear stuff on the radio and I like it. They they've done some good stuff, but uh, no, he. he he did seem to think, well, you must have been doing this when you were, since you were a kid. I said, no, I got my first record deal age 24. He, you know, I said, you were doing it since you were a little kid, right? He said, yeah. So I'm, I'm quite different from a lot of people. In, in the, I did all this traveling, you know, hitchhiking and stuff in the 60s and traveled to, you know, went and lived somewhere and went to Morocco and then got a job in Gibraltar. So I was, I had no professional, and there I am, 23, and I've got nothing going for me. When did you first know you wanted to do music? Well, it was always there since I was like, the Beatles came along. You know, everyone I knew picked up an instrument. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't work hard enough at it. I didn't take it seriously. I missed out the one thing you got to do, learn how to play, learn how to actually do it, you know. Uh, and I was, I was too busy, like, having fun going to clubs in, in the south of Britain where... We'd get amazing acts. You'd get like Freddie King playing down the road in the suburbs of Britain. There were these clubs where these, all these American artists would play because they were largely black acts, were largely ignored in their own country in the late 60s and in the 70s. But we, were, we embraced them. And it was a lot to do with the Stones and those kind of bands who were basically promoting them in their own way. So, um, yeah. So did you just fall into it, or what? Like, did you always write? Well, no. What happened to me? I was when I was living in the Channel Islands in Guernsey, and I started to to, to fall into what everybody else was falling into. You know, 
there, which was um, much more, you know, psychedelic and, and much more the white middle class bands like Pink Floyd, very different from what I'd been into before, soul and blues and things, very different. And uh, so I was influenced by that, and I, I bought an acoustic guitar. You know, I had one as a kid that someone gave me that wasn't very good. So I bought one, and James Taylor was around then, 1971, around that period, and those kind of singer-songwriters. So I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of styles here, and I like them all. And so I got a guitar and started finger-picking, learning some James Taylor songs. And so, you know, I was 18 then, 19, or what, 20 even. And um, so I had, that, that was it. I, I, I kept on with it. And then I, I basically returned to the UK and just did factory jobs, worked in a gas station, did a lot of things like that. But all the while, I was on a kind of stealth mission, writing. And you'd write hundreds of songs, throw them away, write more, write more, until I found the music from my past crept into my influences again. And I started doing things with this soul influence, even rockabilly, and the ska influence of the past had now become reggae with Bob Marley. So that was there, and I realized these songs are better than anything I'm hearing on radio, unless it's Bob Marley, or unless it's the Supremes from the past. And it was, you know, 1973, and I didn't even know how to begin. I had no idea how you begin. And, uh, but, I, but I managed to, you know, put an advert in a music paper and went to London, which is 30 miles up the road from where I was in the suburbs in the country, and met a few people, and somebody said, you should meet this guy, and it turned out to be this guy, Dave Robinson, who was a manager of some bands that had split up, London bands. Uh, and uh, so he heard it and said, uh, let's do some demos in my studio, in his eight-track studio. And uh, a couple of, one song, couple of songs got played on a small radio station in London, and a guy from Phonogram called up and said, who's that guy? Who's that, what's that song? I want to sign him. So I went from literally being, I was a gas station attendant in the county of Surrey, coming up on the train or driving up. And uh, that was it. I had a, a major record deal. Yeah, it was weird. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I, had a, I, I sort of knew, I sort of knew it would happen, but at the same time, it was a rash idea that it would happen. And my manager said in the documentary, you know, it took two weeks to, to, to normally take what, take, what, do something that normally takes two years of bashing around the clubs and, and failing and, and losing your bands and doing, it took two weeks and a guy called up and gave me a record deal. <laughs> and Dave knew all the musicians in London and put the, the rumour guys around me. Um, so I went from nothing to finding myself, you know, on stage before I'd even made the first album, doing a few gigs in 75. And I didn't know what these things were here. They turn out to be called monitors that you hear yourself from. I, I really didn't, I, I don't know, everyone's saying, put some drums in here, put some bass in. So I'm saying, okay, put some drums in bass. I'd never heard my voice, because I, I didn't think, oh, maybe I should start with my voice first. So it was totally, I was totally green to all of it. What did your parents think? They couldn't believe it. I mean, I've been such a waster. You know, 18, I leave my job in England and, and, and say I'm going to live in the Channel Islands, get on a ferry and go there and pick tomatoes, you know. 
They, and, uh, and then all those years went by, I'm working in factories, I'm a typical sub kid who's gonna go nowhere. You know, my, pretty much if I got a job being assistant manager at a small supermarket, that would be the pinnacle of my, my life. You know, and got married to a barmaid from Crowthorn or something, you know. That was pretty much, if, that, if you were lucky to get a barmaid, that was pretty much all that was expected of me. But I was, you know, quietly writing and writing and writing. And, and I didn't, I played a few folk clubs where you turn up with a guitar on the singer's nights, but nothing, nothing of any real use. But I knew I was onto something, somehow or another. And, uh, and I was. <laughs> Astonishingly weird, but, but what? Okay. I went back to the gas station. I said, well, I, I've got to leave the job. I won't leave yet, but I've got a, a record deal. And they were like, oh. And then my t parents were like, oh, all right. And then I'm getting limos for them and bringing them up to London. And my dad's on the stage in a Hammersmith Odeon going, this is all for you, isn't it? All this equipment. I said, yeah, it is. It was the sweetest thing in the world. <laughs> what does music mean to you? Well, it's, it's what it means. It, it, it means, you, you know, you express yourself in ways that you didn't even know you had inside you. you. You didn't even know you were dealing with this sometimes. You didn't even, I didn't even, you know, I don't even know that I'm taking in this information and then turning it into a song. It's one of those things, maybe it's a therapy, maybe it clears your head out and makes room for the next lot of complicated thoughts, you know, in a year's time or two years' time. And so I, and I think it means, I think it should be for the audience as well, you know, when you're playing live or when they're listening to records. Uh, I think it's, 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 it's out of my hands now. It's fair game, in a way. And people ask me things, and I might explain something about it. But essentially, it's mysterious. And uh, a lot of lines in songs have different levels of ways you can take them. Um, but I think it brings people together. That's, that's the main part about it. People, it brings people together. It gives them in, intense emotions and intense disagreements and intense agreements on what's going on here. And it's the soundtrack of people's lives often, especially when I started and, and those fans heard me and went, whoa, we've just heard Springsteen, now this guy's come along? This is interesting. And, and it means, it's, you know, when you get letters or whatever, notes from people saying, you saved my life in my college dorm with squeezing out sparks, saved my life. You get that, I got a, I got a note from a woman who had, had suffered breast cancer and been in a ward, and it was, just, it was just left for me at the venue. I don't know even if she, she came to the show. And it said about the people, your, two of your songs got us through treatment, chemotherapy. It was her and a couple of other ladies in the ward who were suffering cancer. And she said a song called Kid with the Butterfly Net and a song called Strong Winds from an album called Struck by Lightning, one of the top in my canon, I, I consider it, that album. And that was the note she left, those two songs. So I think it's much, and, and I, I take it lightly and think it's just playing with words. It's a, it's a lot of hot air. That's it, people. It's just a lot of hot air. Come on. And when you see that, you think, uh, I guess not. <laughs> Since this is life minute, what's an important life lesson? Oh, a life lesson? Well, if you don't floss, you will lose your teeth. That's about the highest philosophy that I can give you. 
Well, a lot of good American dental work, you know, because the British grew up with no discipline. Uh, we weren't enforced as kids to look after ourselves because my parents, by the time they were 30, had false teeth put in, dentures. Uh, that and um, my, other my latest phrase is, hearsay is the sleazy cousin of conspiracy. Uh, the world is too dangerous for conspiracy and certainly too dangerous from he for hearsay. What somebody heard from somebody else and it becomes truth. We're now in the age where you can write that instantly down and God knows how many people can see it. So that is, you know, there was a lot of hearsay involved in, you know, the success of certain politicians in recent years. You know, if you take Donald Trump, he spoke in terms of hearsay. It was all, yeah, they call it the China virus. I mean, it's not, I got vaccinated, but you know, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's all, I don't know. I mean, some people say, some people say this, the same thing happened with us British doing the, the most wicked, stupid, self-inflicted wound of leaving the greatest uh, community of nations the earth has ever seen, the European Union. A lot of that was hearsay that came from you know, the British gutter press, who pretend to be working class, but aren't. And these things batted around, these, these it completely misinformation about the European Union doing all this and taking away your fish and chips and taking away your Britishness. So uh, I kind of pegged it then that hearsay was like, this is what people start to believe in. It doesn't mean they're all following a conspiratorial website, but they've heard something. And it's misinformation anyway. And it, it, it just, you know, percolates through everything. Uh, what's your secret to longevity? It's uh, genetic. It's my parents lived, you know, 89 and 90, and most of my family are kind of feisty and energetic. And so whatever I do, I look after it. I try to look after it. I try to eat well. Um, but uh, certainly I am, I'm, good. I'm well up for over-drinking quite now and again. <laughs> I do not, uh, you know, condone that, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect or anything, but I did play uh, league um, football, soccer, from the age of 44 till 59, competitive league football. Wow. I, re I did, yes. Competitive? Competitively, yeah, like a, 10 teams in a league. We played you know, outdoors in the summer on the big fields and indoors in the winter. And at the same time, on Wednesday we'd play, and I, this was in uh, Hudson Valley, I'd be up skiing in the morning, come back, have a, have a, try to catch some sleep in the, in the afternoon, eat something, and go off and play intensely competitive wow. soccer because we wanted to win the league. <laughs> and so I, I guess that level of something is there, and, and I still I try to keep fit, but it's not, it's not something, you know, that I... When I'm off from touring, touring debilitates me. Uh, the stress, straight off the bat, I am filled with stress and nerves and worry and looking at where I'm going and what I'm doing and try, trying to figure out what I'm taking and do I have to have two guitars? Yes, I do. do I, uh, so the, the, it's a stressful thing and as soon as I'm on tour, my appetite goes, it kind of flops. Uh, but days off, I'll try to make up for it. And, and, but when I'm off tour, I, you know, I'm, I'm much more healthy, I think. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a healthy lifestyle, really. It's, there's too much tearing around. Yeah. You know, I guess if... Yeah, I've done tours. I've been lucky enough to do it where you've got caterers and things like that. That's a better situation. But, but I'm often going, I've got to eat something before dinner, and there's no food in this venue, and I'm out on the street looking. 
All right, so my next two questions were how do you relax and what's... How do I relax? Yeah. What's relax? <laughs> you know what, I, I suppose relaxing is being with people that I can hang out with or whatever and my, you know, I hang with my kids who are grown up now. My son joined me on, uh, he's living in LA and drove to, to, to the northern part and joined me and my tour manager um, and, you know, hung out with us and, and drove us. He was our driver, designated driver, because I don't know if you know what rental cars cost right now, but it's not a pretty sight, apparently. So, um, you know, that, that just chills me out, family and that. And, um, uh, and uh, otherwise, it's, you know, on the couch watching Netflix or, you know, I just finished Squid, Squid Game. I just finished, of course. <laughs> I, t I was a bit late for that. I loved... Um, uh, the Man in the High Castle, I was obsessed with that, that's great. Watch Lupin on net, which is a brilliant, oh, it's, it's great, watch it. French, French movie, subtitles, fan, not a movie, it's a series, it's basically a heist thing. Some guy is just brilliant and absolutely f just fools everyone, but he's a good guy underneath it all. Money heist as well, let's get to that. I watched, you know, kept up there. There's a lot of different, a lot of documentaries. You know, you might get a Ken Burns or something like that. So it's, it's basically that kind of entertainment that, that I, you know, that's relaxing to me. What is something you don't travel without? <laughs> something I don't travel without. My wallet, that's pretty simple. Uh, anything special? Well, well touring-wise, you know, I've got two guitars, acoustic and electric. That's one thing. Um, uh, for years, it's actually been hand sanitizer, so that came in handy for the situation. <laughs> These are pretty boring things, aren't they? Usually a banana is a good thing to have in your pocket because that goes down well in any situation. What's something you haven't done that you want to do? What's next for you? Um, well, actually, I just uh, accepted a booking for a cruise, a music cruise, that starts in Athens in August. For me, it's impossible to plan that far ahead, but I thought, well, if I, if I agree to this and the plan's done and I'm stuck with it, I've got to be in Athens at a certain date in, and, and on a dock somewhere. And yeah, because I know a lot of people are doing this and I, I never have. How long is it? You just stay there for a week? Or? It's only about five or six days. And I do a couple of shows and there's multi-acts, lots of acts. It should be a real... I'm sure we're going to get a bit crazy out on a boat. Woohoo! Yeah! <laughs> wow. That was awesome. Thank you. Can I have dinner now? Thank you. <laughs> yes, oh, oh, what a break. Very good. Thank you very much, people. Nice to meet you all nice and thank you. you. To see more of this interview, visit our website, lifeminute.tv. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Life Minute TV.